0: A sound soul dwells within a sound mind and a sound body. So it's the. I'm a weapon in the up on the speaker Freezes that are improvised to cure up Ready to die man, ready to tear up Ready for the battle, for the full throttle got to get stronger, with my goals cool on Breaking them home, home All of my rules on you, let's just sing Number one, with a bit of help from the devilish one Teach her to thump, put not come down. done Still struggling like I'm stuck in a trump If it ain't cool, it ain't alive If it is fake, kiss it goodbye Got no vibe, give it no try Hello and welcome back to the Treehouse Anime Club, where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. My name is Dave, and I am the creator and host of this program. And This week, we are covering the production story of Soul Eater, produced by Studio Bones, Aniplex, TV Tokyo, and Dentsu. Again, this is another show that's very special to me. I have a lot of nostalgic ties to this series. Today's show will cap off what I've been referring to, at least internally, behind the scenes, as my self introduction arc of the podcast. With Kiki's Delivery Service, it was more okay, how has what was my first exposure to anime and how has revisiting this series grown like a series that has changed with me? With Ronin Warriors, it was well, what if I have a lot of nostalgia for a series, I haven't seen it in a while, and I go back to it? How does it hold up? But Soul Eater is a show that I've seen over a dozen times over the past 15 years easily. And it remains one of my shows that is kind of like my comfort food. Something that I just go back to. I don't really have to think too hard about it. And I've also seen it so many times. It's just a very comforting thing to go back to. And so that kind of caps off the the self-introduction portion. And not that I don't have nostalgic ties to everything else in the schedule moving forward but these were sort of my foundational works uh, of a sort. So getting into it, Soul Eater is a 51-episode anime adaptation of the manga Soul Eater. The original creator is Atsushi Okubo. Soul Eater is Okubo's first major work and was serialized in Square Enix's monthly Shonen Gangan magazine. The series ran from May 12, 2004 to August 12, 2013, and was compiled into 25 tonkabon. That is an incredibly respectable run. For the manga, Yen Press published the series in English, and more recently, Square Enix has published what we're calling the, the Perfect Edition Omnibus series. So 25 volumes is now 14 hardcover volumes, with new covers illustrated by Okobo. He's got some reworked color pages in there as well, and some new author's notes. The anime adaptation for Soul Eater, the 51 Episodes, ran from April 7th, 2008 to March 30th, 2009. Which means, if you're keeping count of dates, we have an interesting situation to talk about later in this episode, seeing the manga didn't finish for another four years after the anime's conclusion. But before we get into all that, of course, I have housekeeping. We have a Discord server now. If you want, you can follow the link in the post below, or you can also check out the Treehouse Anime Club Instagram page, I believe I have a link embedded there as well. It should still be good. I will also, if you reach out to me, I will be glad to send you a link for the podcast. You can subscribe via Spotify or copy the RSS link into your platform of choice. And again, our Instagram is Pod, all one word. You can stay up to date with the show plus extra goodies. Any and all means of engagement really helps out the show. I really appreciate all the support that we've gotten so far. And speaking of a little bit of feedback, I am trying out a new segment. I liked the idea of having a guessing game on paper and then kind of throwing that at the end of the episode, but I'm actually going to rework this segment into something that will fit immediately following the introduction to the podcast, a little brain teaser that I'm going to call the 15 seconds of fame. And what it's going to be is I'm going to play about 15 seconds of music, or I'm going to play a clip from a show and it's up to you to figure out what anime that clip is from. And you can, I will also have this posted on Instagram. You can send your guesses to the Instagram post. I will have a channel on the Discord. You can uh, post there. Or you can send the show, you can email the show at treehouseanimepod at gmail.com. Anywhere you feel comfortable, I will collect all the comments. I'll put them all into a nice little sheet. And I'll read all the comments on the show. We'll just have a nice time together reading out the various guesses. I think it's going to be a fun little engagement point for for the show. I have a lot of fun looking these up and I think you'll have a lot of fun guessing them. And really quick, what's been going on since episode two? Well, shortly after Ronan Warriors, we had the release of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. And to be honest, that's been a lot of what I've been doing in my free time when I'm not working on the podcast. It's a, it's that, that game has sucked me in, man. It's it's hard to put down. I really enjoyed Breath of the Wild. Tears of the Kingdom is just so much more expansive. It's so much fun. I have still been watching anime though. I'm still the junkie at heart. And man, this past week was also torture without a new episode of Oshinoko. I was heartbroken to see that the episode 8 got delayed. Waiting this extra week, when I got the news that Oshinoko had a delayed episode for last week, man, I was, ugh, it was rough, especially with how the series has been trending so far. But I'm a patient guy. I used the opportunity to catch up on some of the backlog, so I'm caught up on Hell's Paradise now, I'm caught up on Ancient Magus Bride. I'm kind of liking it, but that's about it. Work's been pretty busy. Uh, The yard is also just growing like a weed. I'm looking out to my backyard right now, and I just have this sense of dread of, yeah, it's time to mow it. (laughs) Other than that, it's summer. That's what happens in Mississippi in the summer. Everything just explodes, so... That's about it. That's been going on with the podcast so far. I have a lot of plans for the upcoming episodes, I think, moving forward. These three episodes have been a really good launching point. I pretty much have my feet under me at this point. The episode writing, the, the script writing is going very well. I'm also backing off on being such a script heavy deal right now. I'm moving more towards bullet points. All of this that you've been hearing right now is just me kind of going off the cuff. So I am trying to lessen the the writing burden and leave it more for when I need to consult facts and relevant information versus, oh, I'm going to say this about this character. And then I, I want to let my allow myself to go off on tangents. I think I have some interesting things to say when that happens. And if I go for too long, well, that's why we have the magic of editing people. That's about it. So we're going to transition over to the next part and we're going to start setting the scene with a studio report and then the character rundowns and all that good stuff, but first, here's your first ever 15 seconds of fame, get your detecting hats, here we go. So with episode three, we're already starting to build this little industry web that I talked about making in episode one. Because the interesting thing about Studio Bones, I'm going to start the episode with the studio rundown. And the interesting thing about Studio Bones is it's actually founded by former Sunrise staff members. They left Studio Sunrise and founded Bones in 1998. We have Masahiko Minami, who was a producer at Sunrise. The second main producer is Hiroshi Osaka, who passed away from cancer in 2007, so he was replaced by two other people. But Osaka-san was one of the animation directors on Samurai Troopers, as well as the series Cowboy Bebop. He also contributed to the key animation and ending credits for Bebop. And the third main producer at Studio Bones is Toshihiro Kawamoto. And he did the character design for Cowboy Bebop and some Gundam OVA series. We're talking the Stardust Memory 0083 and uh, 08th MS Team. I think that's how you say that. He was also the character designer for Wolf's Reign and he contributed to key animation on Full Metal Alchemist 2003, Sword of the Stranger, or in High School Host Club and just other shows as well. Studio Bones also has a similar setup to Sunrise in that the production is actually decentralized into smaller studios. For Bones, it's labels A through E. These more or less focus on individual projects. And the studio's first project was actually a collaboration with Sunrise on the film Cowboy Bebop, Knocking on Heaven's Door. So between studios A through E, it was actually Studio C who acted as the production house for Soul Eater. And it's helmed by producer Yoshihiro Oyabu. He is the current chief producer for the My Hero Academia franchise. And some of my favorites from Studio Bones include Razifon, that's a mecha series, Wolf's Rain. I really like Darker Than Black. Obviously, their big one is Full Metal Alchemist and the Brotherhood. They did Space Dandy. More recently, they did Carol on Tuesday. Of course, their big cash cow right now is the My Hero Academia series. They made a movie in 2020 that I really love, Jose, the Tiger and the Fish, and obviously Mob Psycho 100. That is one of my favorite series that they've done. I just love the studio. I hit my desk. Ow. And all in all, Bones has gone on to produce over 50 series and movies that include some of my favorite anime just ever produced. And from the list that I just rattled off, you can expect some episodes in the future on this show, probably sooner than you would think. And next, I want to cover the beginnings, the origins of Soul Eater as the manga. And of course, this starts with the author. Atsuchi Okobo began his manga career as an assistant to Rando Ayamine, who is the creator of Get Backers. And I'm not very familiar with Get Backers. I only read a little bit of this manga a very long time ago. I think it was about two guys who run uh, various ob jobs around uh, the city that usually gets them to... Some kind of conflict with the local gangs. I think the the two guys also have some slight vague superpowers. It's, it's an interesting manga, I just never finished it. But anyways, uh, Okobo's actual manga career uh, as, a, as his own work. He debuted with a series called BEG that ran for a short while and ended up making about four volumes. I don't like it, but you can also see some early character designs that would later be put into Soul Eater. Which, speaking of, Soul Eater was his next manga, and it's actually his first major work. He also penned a prequel series called Soul Eater Knot in OT, starting in January 2011, and that manga concluded in November of 2014. The Soul Eater Knot was also adapted into a 12-episode series by Studio Bones, but we are not covering this series I have read a little bit of the manga. I made it about halfway through the show. It's okay. It's more of a slice-of-life take on Soul Eater, but until it isn't. But for what it is, it's fine. Okabo's most recent manga is Fire Force. This was serialized in a different magazine. This is Kodansha's weekly shonen magazine. That actually wrapped up just last year and is currently being adapted by David Productions. Uh, since about 2019, I think, is when that first episode was. And so season three of the anime was announced last May. Again, it was another long running series. Basically, as soon as he wrapped up Soul Eater in 2013, I think Fire Force began in 2015 or so. And it ran until just last year, 2022. Another just really heck of a run. So getting back to Soul Eater, the manga originally began as a one-shot series. He wrote the first chapter, or I should say the first part, and it was extremely well received, so he did two more. And based off of these three one-shots, or these three chapters, he was then asked to create the series, and thus Soul Eater was born. And these three one-shot chapters became known as the prologue chapters for the series. They basically just established the setting and the main characters for Soul Eater. And a thing about Okobo's art style, he really has some strong line work he likes to also work in the abstract. He brings his, his art style, I should say, is like very surreal. His compositions just are, are very weird, but in a really cool way. He likes to place his characters around just the most absurd architecture and most bizarre backgrounds that he can. He's also an excellent cartoonist. Okabo is, of course, also perfectly capable of producing more realistic images when he needs to. And he's not afraid to mix realism with the absurd as well. Just anything to heighten that absurd. A lot of his influences, he states, are Tim Burton and this general Halloween for Soul Eater. And I'll get more into his art style when we get to the character design section later in the main staff. Soul Eater is an action shonen set at the Death Weapon Meister Academy, the DWMA, or also called Shibusen in the Japanese dub. This is located in the fictional town of Death City, Nevada in the United States, in the middle of the desert. The school is run by the Grim Reaper. This is Lord Death, like Death Personified. And the school acts as a training facility for humans who transform into weapons and their partner wielders called Meisters. The Meister students attend the academy with the goal of having their partner weapon absorb the souls of 99 evil humans. These are called Kishin Eggs plus the soul of one witch. This process dramatically increases the weapon's power and turns them into a Death Scythe to be wielded by Lord Death himself. The story primarily follows three partner groups who later joined together to form a Meister Squad. And I mentioned something about souls, because the power system in this world is rather interesting. The soul is a tangible object in this world, and not only that, it emits wavelengths like a miniature radio or like a cell tower. And a soul's wavelength can have various properties depending on the individual. And the way a Meister weapon pairing works is kind of best explained by the show itself. Because by themselves, normal people emit a rather small wavelength. But the Meisters and weapons train together in order to match their soul wavelengths, which creates this mutual feedback loop called Resonance. And this resonance allows the Meister to perform actions well beyond the abilities of a normal human. The show describes this as an electric guitar by itself versus when it's hooked up to an amp. That's the feedback loop between a Meister and a weapon. And if this resonance is pushed further, the Meister can then power up their weapon to unleash special moves. This is your bread and butter uh, shown in action stuff. You got to call out the name of your special attack when you're launching the special move. This is the same for Soul Eater. And in order to foster this relationship, Meister and Weapon Pairs actually live together. They attend classes together. This whole matching wavelengths thing sounds complicated on paper. But what you need to understand is at the end of the day, this really boils down to getting along with your partner and uh, learning to understand them. So getting into the actual partners now, we have our main character, Maka Albarn, and her scythe partner, Soul Eater. Maka has silver hair, which she usually keeps it in pigtails. Her main outfit is what I would believe to be the school's uniform. This is a white blouse, yellow sweater, vest. There's a green tie. She has a plaid skirt. She wears these big old black boots with silver buckles. Maka also wears a black trench coat and that kind of fans out behind her. And she also wears white gloves when she's wielding Sol as a scythe. Sol, on the other hand, has white spiky hair. It's kind of parted to one side. He's got red eyes. And he's got this mouth full of chompers. He's got some very pointed teeth. He can always make these almost wolf-like hungry expressions when he wants to. But for the most part, he just looks bored or kind of aloof. Sol usually wears a bandana, which he makes these bandanas for himself. It has his name on it. And it also has the show's logo on it. He also wears a yellow jacket. Kind of looks like a varsity jacket. It's got the show's logo on the back as well. And he usually completes this set with red pants or jeans. Maka, she is very earnest, she's very driven, she's basically one of the honor students at the school, one of the top three students at the school. And Soul, in contrast, he puts on airs of being this aloof, cool, delinquent, that's just his idea of looking and being cool. And while Maka is physically the weakest on her team, to be fair, her teammates are like the two strongest guys in the school, her other Meister teammates. Her main ability is actually her soul's wavelength. She also has a knack for soul perception, which is identifying and tracking down, let's say the, the evil Kishin souls or a witch's soul, we'll get on that in a second. And Maka develops her wavelength in a way where it's basically a purification factor. If you have if the Kishin represents like the worst of the world, Maka's soul wavelength basically purifies that evil. Getting on to the second pair, we have the Assassin Meister Black Star in his ninja weapon partner Tsubaki, and I'm going to try and do this last name, Nakatsukasa. Well, that actually wasn't too bad. Tsubaki is unique in that she can actually transform into multiple weapons. So Black Star is the last surviving member of the Star Clan of Ninja, who were wiped out by Lord Death and the squad, because these guys were all on the path to becoming Keshin. They were all hunting humans. Black Star, however, was an infant at the time, so Lord Death actually brought him back to the academy. Blackstar has blue spiky hair in, in the shape of a star. He has blue eyes. He also has a star tattoo on his right shoulder. That's the symbol of his clan. He wears a sleeveless black shirt. He's got a tall collar. He's got these white pants. Again, another one who wears big old black boots. And Blackstar is actually rather short. He hasn't quite hit the growth spurt yet. And the his voice performances uh, lend themselves to that, of like this preteen kind of tweeny kid. He's not quite there, but he's, he's getting there. Sabaki, on the other hand, she is very tall. I think she's the oldest in the group. She wears her hair in a long... She has long black hair. She wears it in a long ponytail. She has these very round, kind brown eyes. Her outfit's a pale yellow sleeveless skirt. Kind of looks like a, a ninja outfit, kind of like a Kunoichi outfit. She also has stitched a yellow star to the right chest, As a sort of a solidarity with Blackstar. Tsubaki's clan are actually direct descendants from the very first magic weapons, which were created by a witch named Arachne Gorgon. I'll get to her later. Blackstar is very brash. He's very loud, very much, look at me, look at me, I'm so great. While Tsubaki is very demure, she's mature, she's level-headed, she's not the one to stir the pot and these two balance each other out very well especially given how Black Star's personality is rather abrasive to most people and like i said earlier Tsubaki has the ability to transform into multiple weapons this is an ability unique to her clan and they just all happen to be ninja tools she has the dagger there's a she can transform into shuriken she can do a smoke bomb and all of this is rather convenient because Black Star himself is a descendant from a ninja clan Blackstar cannot perceive souls like Maka or the the next character, Death the Kid. But what he can do is punch you really, really, I mean, really hard. And he also has a technique called the big wave. And it's basically zapping opponents with his own soul, soul wavelength once he makes contact. And if you're thinking of this in terms of the radio signals, this big wave technique basically acts like a signal jammer. Or really, it's more like a signal scrambler. Death the Kid is our next one. He is the son, uh, ostensibly, of Lord Death. He has two partners. He has twin pistols, Liz and Patty Thompson. Death the Kid is a burgeoning death god, and he was created from a fragment of Lord Death. So he is a shinigami. He's proud of it, but he doesn't exactly lord it over people, but he still carries this aristocratic manner about him. He usually wears a black suit with white rectangles, and these rectangles are placed in a way that's perfectly symmetrical. Symmetry is kind of kid's thing he's obsessed with an idea of perfection and this has to be everything has to match and the symmetry applies to his choice of wielding two weapons because he can't stand the idea of being off balanced other than this weird obsession with symmetry he's actually one of the more balanced mature members of the group and he actually gets along rather well with maka and subaki and of course black star it's kind of a more well day by day sort of thing So getting to the weapons, Liz and Patty are twin sisters. They grew up on the streets of New York, and they basically had an encounter with Death the Kid while he was in New York. They basically tried to mug him, but he ended up convincing them to come home to Death City with him and become his weapons. And despite being twins, these girls are complete opposites. You have Liz. She's taller. She's got the longer brown hair, kind of goes down to her shoulders. She's got slate gray eyes. She generally uh, likes to accessorize, kind of keeps herself well-groomed and mature. Patty, on the other hand, she has short blonde hair, blue eyes. She's a complete ditz, airhead, manic pixie dream girl. The two girls are actually introduced wearing the same outfit in their debut episode. That's episode two. And it's sort of this cowgirl western, even with the cowgirl hats, even the shape of their hats, their, the cut of their jeans, all their shoes, the way they accessorize. Basically, in every way, Liz and Patty dress and act differently, which drives Death the Kid nuts. And Kid is also very prideful in his own way, because he is a death god. He doesn't need to collect souls, but he insists on creating his own death scythe weapons. So, with Liz and Patty, that basically means double the work. And speaking of souls, soul types basically act as the power indicator for this series. There are even select Meisters with the ability to detect these soul wavelengths and therefore track specific soul patterns. This is called soul perception. So Meisters like Maka, Death the Kid, and others can perceive and track the souls of Kishins and witches. And it's a rather useful ability to have, particularly for Maka, who's the main character. This allows... The audience to be informed about, okay, Maka is detecting the relevant threat that's in the area. And so, in speaking of general soul classes, you basically have three very general classes. I'm just doing a very top level thing here. First off, and the most common, you have a human soul. This is just a light blue glowing ball. This is the most common soul type. And in contrast, you have the Akishan egg soul. This is a soul corrupted by bad deeds, evil deeds, I should say, and on the first steps to becoming a demon known as the Kishan. This is a very bad thing. The biggest taboo in the world of Soul Eater is for a human to eat another human soul. This is quite literally cannibalism. And people who consume human souls get an immense power boost at the cost of their sanity. And this Kishin egg is so designated as this sickly, red, scaly, scabby-looking soul, and if it's developed further, you become this demon of insanity, and your very wavelength, your mere presence, will drive regular people insane. Kishins are basically the worst thing that can happen in this world, and their prevention and eradication is the primary goal of the DWMA. And lastly, we have witches. These are women who have magical powers, and generally have a more chaotic instinct. If you think of the two general power structures in the world, you have the DWMA, who represents the order. Then you have the Witches faction, which represents chaos. Every witch in Soul Eater is rather unique. They're based on specific animal motifs. So you have the snake, frog, spider, mouse, raccoon, that kind of stuff. Their magic is also animal-themed as well. So, witches' souls are typically purple and take the rough shape of whatever their magic represents. On the outside, these women look like normal humans, but some of them also costume up, dress in a way that represents their animal. Witches also have a specialized technique called Soul Protect. This allows them to mask their soul wavelength in order to combat the Weapon Meister's Soul Perception technique. Although this whole soul protect thing also seals away a witch's magic. So there is a drawback. And so getting into the staff on the show, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to cover the voice cast ahead of the production staff. It's a little bit of a mix up, but I think this will flow into my main topic easier. But let me start by, by saying just how utterly stacked both of these dub casts are. The Japanese actors specifically also have various music credits throughout the show. And they also did character-specific themes in a Soul Eater character album CD. These were made after the show. And so it has all of the voice actors basically singing as their characters. And the Japanese cast as a whole are very heavily involved in music production and also lend their voices to multiple properties. It's actually rather fun to check out their works while researching for the podcast. And, of course, there are video games for Soul Eater. There's a couple. So, the Japanese cast reprised their roles for the video games. On the English side, this was dubbed by Funimation. I know it's now Crunchyroll at the time. But the the Funimation English dub crew represents some of the more prolific voice actors of the time. And a lot of these guys are still around. And in my ears, this kind of became to be known as the regular crew. There is this sort of animation, anime boom around the time I was getting into the stuff. This is mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s, started to get into there, of like physical stuff. This is kind of the boom before streaming really took off. And so for anime licensed and dubbed during this time, the mid-late 2000s, it felt like every show by Funimation had this same group of people voicing all the characters. That's kind of, that's not exactly accurate on my part, but it's just how I felt at the time and how I still feel when I go to listen to uh, dubs from this time period. And a number of folks in the English cast, like we'll say Todd Haberkorn, he doubles up as a character actor and he's also an ADR director. He was a script writer. Again, this is a pretty standard practice across the English dubbing industry, just like with Kiki's and the Ronin Warriors from our previous episodes. So let's get into it. First off, we have our main character, Maka Albarn. Her Japanese actress is Chiaki Omagawa. This is actually her uh, debut role. Uh, If you want more recent examples, Chiaki is still around. She recently voiced in Birdie Wing Golf Girl's story, as well as a couple of characters through the vampire series Call of the Night. Maka's English actress is Laura Bailey. You may recognize her from a lot of different shows. I have her as Full Metal Alchemist. She voices a villain named, villainess named Lust. You have Soul Eater Evans, who is... Not named after the show. It's actually the Kishin Ashura is the Soul Eater. But Soul Eater's Japanese actor is Koki Uchiyama. He is the voice of he's the Japanese voice of Roxas in Kingdom Hearts series. And for English, we have Mika Solaasad, who does several different voice roles across the deal. He does a lot more like side characters, but he does voice Sado Takizawa from Tokyo Ghoul, and he also voices the main character Kenshin Himura from Raroni Kenshin. Getting into Black Star, he is voiced by women in both dubs. Black Star is like ostensibly 12, I think. He's got that very preteen kind of young kid voice. So he's not he's kind of on that edge. So in Japanese, Black Star is voiced by Yumiko Kobayashi. She voices Izzy, Izzy in the Digimon Adventures 2020 series. Uh Yumiko's performance kind of gives Black Star this more raspy voice, kind of like his voice is trying to drop, but it's not quite there yet. And in English, Black Star is voiced by Brittany Karboski, who's the voice of Nanichi in Maiden Abyss, English stuff. And Brittany's performance of Black Star is very much informed by Yumiko's, but she doesn't quite have the rasp. And I, I like having that little awkward rasp to it. Sibaki's actress in Japanese is Kaori Nazaka. She is a big singer, and she also voices a character, Nunnally Lamparouge, in Code Geass. In English, Tsubaki is voiced by Monica Rial, who's best known today as Bulma from Dragon Ball Super. Death the Kid in, is voiced by Mamoru Miyano. Hello, Light Yagami. No, I do not want to sign my name in your magical death note. And in English, Death the Kid is voiced by Todd Haberkorn. This is old, good old Natsu Dragneel from Fairy Tale. And who could forget best boy Ling Yao from Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood? Liz Thompson is voiced by Akino Watanabe, who voices a character named Hitch in Attack on Titan. She also is the bandit leader from an episode of Star Wars Visions. This is the Ronin episode. In English, Liz is voiced by Jamie Marchi, who is the voice of Mount Lady in My Hero Academia. And I hope I don't get in trouble for this one. She voices Ria's Grammarie from High School DD. Oof. Patty Thompson is voiced by Narumi Takahira, and this is a voice I've, I've not heard Takahira's voice since Soul Eater. Her latest role is Patty across Soul Eater projects. So she's done a couple of side, uh, she's done a couple of side voices before that, but her she basically has done Patty Thompson, and that is it. And in English, Patty is voiced by Chirami Lee who also voices A2 in Nier Automata video game. That is a very different vocal performance than Patty Thompson. I thought to just include that as a, yeah, this is going to be a little bit of whiplash. If you want to hear this Manic Pixie Dream Girl be a depressed robot. And that basically rounds out the main cast. I'm going to list a couple of the major side characters and the major villains. So let's get into it. First off, we have Lord Death, Shinigami-sama, Grim Reaper, whichever you want to say. In Japanese, he's voiced by Rikia Koyama. This guy is super cool. He's the official dub-over voice for George Clooney. And if you want an anime credit, he voices the very manly Mamoru Takamura in the boxing series Hajime no Ippo. And in English, the Grim Reaper is voiced by John Swayze. This is the voice of Dodoria in Dragon Ball Z Kai, as well as the video games. He also voices Daisuke Aramaki in the Ghost in the Shell Arise series. And Lord Death is basically the god of the Soul Eater world. He About 800 years ago and before, he basically maintained a squad to hunt evil souls in the past, but one of his squad members, Ashura, betrayed the group and became a Kishan. And in order to finally seal Ashura away, Lord Death was not able to actually kill Ashura. The best he could do was, and this is going to be pretty metal, skin Ashura alive and sew him up, seal him away in a bag made of his own skin. And to further seal Oshiro away, Death had to root his own soul in place to keep the madness contained. Hence, this is the whole reason for the Academy and the peacekeeping organization, the DWMA, that's kind of the impetus for all of this. Death cannot leave Death City. He's stuck there. He basically looks like a cut of like this pitch black jagged cloth, like almost like a cardboard cutout in some uh, Some aspects. He's got this silly top hat. He's got a cartoonish like skull mask. He even has these big old blocky hands when he needs them. He looks very much like a mascot character. And this is very much by design. Death had a more intense look in the past. But when he opened up the academy, his appearance kept scaring away all the kids. So he changed that appearance to be more appealing so people could talk to him. And Death's right hand man is the Death Scythe Spirit Albarn. Voiced by Toru Oka- Ookawa, he voices Saito in Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. And in English, Spirit is voiced by Vic Mignogna, who we all know from Ed- as Edward Elric from Fullmetal Alchemist and several other main character roles. Spirit is Maka's dad, and again, he's Death's right-hand man at the Academy. He's basically the resident weapon for Lord Death if he needs it. Spirit has long red hair, he's got green eyes like Maka. He wears a tuxedo with a red button-up shirt and a black cross motif like tie. Spirit, as a weapon, he is a black scythe. And his original Meister was actually a character I'm going to cover next, Dr. Frankenstein. But Maka's mother, frankly, rescued Spirit from Stein and was the one who subsequently turned him into a death scythe. They shortly married, soon after. And Spirit puts on this air of of maturity, but he's actually just this unabashed skirt chaser maka actually grew up watching him constantly cheat on her mom which honestly did not give maka a good impression of man this is something she and soul have to work out and when maka was old enough to enroll in the academy her mother dumped spirit and went to travel the world maka and her mom are very close she gets postcards from her mom all the time and maka basically lives by herself independent of her dad and also her mom kind of supports her financially. But Spirit dearly loves his daughter and does what he can for her in his own way. Even though Maka basically doesn't want to have anything to do with him. That still doesn't stop Spirit from trying. But at the same time, he also doesn't try to break his habit of visiting the cabaret club all the time. And our next character is Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein. <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. His Japanese actor is Yuya Uchida. This is the violence fiend from Chainsaw Man and others. English voice is Chuck Huber. I really like this guy's voice. He is the voice of Androids 13 and 17 through Dragon Ball Z. And what I know him, my first exposure to Chuck's voice was his performance of Shao Tucker from Full Metal Alchemist. Woof. Frankenstein is the strongest Meister to have graduated from the academy. He's kind of a genius. But he's also a scientist obsessed with, well, just knowledge in general. He's run several human experiments, mostly on himself. First thing you'll notice about him are his glasses, his array of medical scars. This also extends to his lab coat. He's got this whole stitching motif. And oh yeah, I can't forget one small detail. He's got a giant screw stuck through his head. And he like turns this screw with like a weird click. It's so ominous. He is—he's he's, naturally—he's a little crazy, but he also becomes a teacher at the academy and becomes the main mentor figure for Maka, Soul, Black Star, Tsubaki, Death the Kid, and the Thompson sisters. He's a really cool guy, and when you can see him in action, when when he jumps into action, it's a sight to see. Mifune is another side character. He's more of an anti-hero. He doesn't appear too much through the series, but he's very important to the development of Black Star specifically. His actor is Kenjiro Suda, who voices Richard Raceman from Aparai Ranman*, and he also voices another character, Shin Yasuda from *Horimiya*. And in English, his actor is Robert McCollum. You may recognize him as Reiner Braun from *Attack on Titan*. And like I said before, Mifune is the main rival to Black Star. He has long blonde hair. He's got these harsh blue eyes. He actually dresses rather plain, usually just white shirt and blue jeans, some sandals. He is a samurai and a bodyguard to a little witch named Angela. He basically took her in when he was sent on assignment to murder this witch, but he realized this is just a little kid. I don't murder kids. And so instead he took Angela and ran away from the mob that he used to work for. And subsequently he ends up being blackmailed into service for a villain, a villain witch Arachne, who basically holds Angela hostage. And so Mifune is this interesting anti-hero sort of character. And he doesn't use one sword. He has an entire cases of swords. He's, he just throws these into the air. He scatters these weapons, these katana, across the field to make an arena. And he can fi- even fire these swords out of the cases like a cannon. He's a very unique fighting style. I, I can't Again, I just can't really describe how cool it is to just have a guy make an arena out of swords... Use those swords as platforms, and just grab every sword from the ground all at once, and just throw it. Like it's his fighting style is incredibly unique. It's so much fun watching him and Black Star duel. And although it was the D.W.M.A. who wiped out the Star Clan, Mifune actually finished the job by killing their leader, White Star, and this is Blackstar's dad. And by this time, White Star had just gone full Kishin. So there's an interesting failure of the father trial for the son aspect to Mifune's rivalry with Blackstar. And of course, Mifune has this whole thing of, I don't kill kids. So it's a very interesting dynamic when he has to come into direct conflict with Blackstar, when it's his job to attempt to murder Blackstar. So getting into the proper villains now, we first have Medusa Gorgon. She's one of the three Gorgon sisters. And her actress is Hoko Kawashima. She voices a character, uh, Kwan Kisaragi, in the series Razafon, but... Kawashima-san is more uh, less a singer, and she's a very good one as well. In English, Medusa is voiced by Lucy Christian, who, similar to Patty's English actress, if you want, like, Medusa is a very intimidating character. Nagisa Furukawa from Clanad is another one of Lucy Christian's roles, very much the, on the opposite end of the, of the spectrum. Medusa is usually seen in a black body-length suit with a hood, kind of like a jumpsuit, she has blonde hair, yellow snake-like eyes. She also has her blonde hair tied in a way that represents a serpent tongue, kind of like sits on her chest. And Medusa is the cause of most of the conflict in this series. She operates mostly behind the scenes, but she's not afraid to get her hands dirty. And her main thing is she is obsessed with learning about how Akitian is developed. And she is responsible for subsequently freeing the big bad of the series, Ashura using a substance she develops called black blood. This acts like regular blood, but it enhances abilities that draw upon insanity. So yeah, her plan is to revive a god of insanity, and power him up with magical insanity steroids. Great plan. But she also has backup plans. She is a very manipulative person. So because she controls the black blood, she ostensibly would control the Kishin. This woman has plans upon plans upon plans, and she will manipulate and blackmail anyone to get her goals including her own child. So I have Crona, I have her child Crona, listed as what with the villains, but I didn't feel right introducing Crona before their mother. And Crona is a character who is voiced by women in both languages, but Crona themselves is presented as more general gender neutral. And this vagueness on Crona's gender is, is a purposeful thing in both the manga and the anime. So in Japanese, Krona is voiced by Maya Sakamoto. She is the voice of Motoko Kusanagi across the Ghost in the Shell franchise. Maya also has a ton of musical credits. Some of my examples, she's done vocals for Songs in Wolf's Reign, or in High School Host Club, and Ghost in the Shell Arise. In English, Krona is voiced by Maxi Whitehead, who is also the voice of Alphonse Elric from Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And Krona is known as the Demon Swordsman. They are Medusa's child and the main subject of experimentation for both Keishan development and the Black Blood. Medusa wants nothing more than a Keishan under her direct control. So the Demon Sword in question is actually a living symbiote named Ragnarok, whose main pastime involves emotionally tormenting Krona. If you want to think of Ragnarok like uh, the symbiote Venom from Spider-Man, you can, except Ragnarok is composed of Krona's own blood. And the more souls that they harvest, Ragnarok gets more swole. Krona, on the other hand, always looks thin and emaciated, like on the verge of just cracking in half at any second. They have pale purple hair, purple kind of pale purplish hair, gray eyes, and all. they're always looking down. Krona's always looking at the ground, always subservient. Krona has basically been emotionally abused all their life to where they don't want to interact with anything. And this is on purpose, because Medusa wants to drive Crona into an emotional corner and succumb to the madness. But for some, but somehow, Crona is able to resist all of this for the most part. And Maka is a big part in turning Crona around for good. But at the same time, they're still this person is still subject to the machinations of Medusa. Medusa is still their mother. And the person who's been working on them for the longest. So Krona is really more of a tragic villain. It's a tragic hero, becomes a tragic villain. Krona is overall just a very, very tragic character. Getting into one of our next main villains, we have Arachne Gorgon. She's the oldest of the Gorgon sisters. The there's a third sister named Shaula, who is introduced during Soul Eater Not. Shaula does not appear in either the manga of Soul, main manga of Soul Eater or the anime. Arachne is voiced by Michiko Neya, who's known as Reza Hawkeye from the Fullmetal Alchemist franchise, and in English, she's voiced by Stephanie Young. This is the voice of Nico Robin from One Piece, and Arachne is, again, the oldest of the Gorgon sisters, and she's the original creator of the Magic Weapons 800 years ago, which labeled her as a Witch's Heretic, and also in the process, she double-crossed the DWMA, so she ended up pissing off both factions and ended up on the run but somehow managed to hide away until the Kishan's re-emergence uh, revitalized her 800 years later. Arachne is leader of the group Arachnophobia. They basically want to topple the DWMA and rule the world with madness. Very simple. Arachne has long black hair. She's got black eyes, black purplish eyes with a white spider pack pattern. She always dresses in black dresses, very spider motif. She carries herself like an aristocrat. Her speech is refined. She has huge tracks of land. And she also, <laughs> oh man, uh, Arachne doesn't directly engage in combat either. She leaves everything pretty much up to her subordinates. But when Arachne does join the fight, it's very much of like a spider ambush pattern. <laughs> I can't believe I did that joke. Um, mo- <laughs> moving on. We have Ashura, who is the Kishin and ostensibly the biggest threat to the world. His Japanese voice is Toshio Furukawa, who voices Piccolo from Dragon Ball franchise. And in English, he's voiced by Christopher Patton, who is one of the ADR directors and scriptwriters for the English dub of Ghost Stories. That's a very infamous English dub, so I felt like throwing that in there. But he's also the voice of the homunculus Greed from Full Model Alchemist. This is the one with the sunglasses. And Ashura was formerly the strongest member of the Shinigami squad before betraying everyone to become a Kishin. And his particular madness is the embodiment of fear itself. And so his particular madness wavelength amplifies a person's worst fears and can induce nightmares. And in the past... Ashura was afraid of everything and everyone all at once, even his own weapon. So he actually ate his own weapon. It was a Vajra, which is a, I think I said that right, was this Buddhist ritual object. And Ashura dresses primarily in red, white, and black. He has black hair with uh, white eye-shaped highlight patterns. His eyes are kind of his thing. He has red eyes. He also has a third eye. When he's attacking, he actually adopts this Buddhist-like prayer pose, which is very ironic considering he represents everything that Buddhism warns against. And his revival and subsequent hunt is the main driver of the back half of Solider. There's a lot of incidental things that happen in the pursuit of the Kishin, and there are various factions who want to control him instead of eradicate him. And in the end, Ashura needs to be taken down because he will ultimately drive the world insane. So to start things off, this is our first episode covering a manga adaptation specifically. Now, although this is one of the most common ways anime gets produced, it's primarily to promote the manga it's adapting, but it's a little different than just adapting a book into film, like we talked about with Kiki's. Because the not only do the planning and writing teams have to determine, you know, the whole material, how much they want to adapt, and how they will adapt to work, you also have to consider how are we going to pay respect to the original designs from the manga. This is a comic book adaptation. And this is less prevalent nowadays, but even just a few years ago, we had the Shonen Jump behemoths like Naruto and... Dragon Ball, where the anime would catch up with the manga. There's no new material to adapt, but rather than halt production, the, the studio would produce these filler episodes and just even entire filler arcs of anime original side adventures while the manga would get ahead of the adaptation because every week there just had to be a new Naruto, Bleach, One Piece, etc. But nowadays, this practice of just producing filler for the sake of having an episode out The popular shows have pretty much proven that there doesn't need to be this constant flow of just new content all the time. The fans have proven that they will show up. So nowadays, it's more of a, I would say it's more of a rotating stable of shows. So, for example, you'll have like one series like Demon Slayer will go on break while the manga keeps going. And instead, you'll get Jujutsu Kaisen. My Hero Academia has been uh, forging ahead and like I said earlier, the Soul Eater anime was produced and finished its run while the manga was still going. The manga still went for another four years. So there naturally, there was a point where the anime caught up with what was available to adapt. So you had a couple of decisions here. You can either produce filler episodes to let the manga do get ahead of the show and then keep going. You could... Just do, uh, the journey continues or our adventure will continue in the next series. That's always an ending that is kind of, I find those endings kind of frustrating, but it's also like, okay, we've adapted up to this point. If you want to experience more, go read the manga. Your third option is also to do an anime original ending, which is what Soul Eater went for. So for those of you who want to experience the full series and kind of where the split happens, the anime and manga differences begin on episode 35. For this episode, I want to go full nerd over the animation. Uh, A few key individuals amongst the animation staff that I want to highlight because there was a bit of experimental animation work done on Soul Eater and it's had a lot of far-reaching influences in the industry. And the people who have worked on this show are still around and they've only gotten better. So first off, we have the director, Takuya Igarashi. He started his career with Toei Animation as an assistant episode director on Saint Seiya. And shortly after that, he went freelance. And leading up to Soul Eater, he'd actually worked on series primarily targeted at at girls. Uh, Say, a little-known series called Sailor Moon. He was a storyboarder. He was an assistant director. He was one of the episode directors. And then later, when it came into Sailor Moon R and Sailor Stars, he was in the head seat. You kind of get the pictures. And even one of the shows that he worked on just before Soul Eater... So overall this is a rather interesting career leading up to an action series but I think the Sailor Moon experience in particular with alongside Maka being the main character of Soul Eater he really was was a great one of the best guys for the job in this aspect the character designer and chief animation director was Yoshiyuki Ito and if you want an action animator you got one of the best in the business and don't take my word for it check out this ra- check out this resume First off, he was a key animator on over half of the episodes of Cowboy Bebop, plus the movie, where he also doubled up as an assistant animation director. And if you've seen anything from Cowboy Bebop, especially like how complex that action choreography is, that's one of the highlights of Cowboy Bebop. That credit alone should be enough. He is also a key animator for the opening and ending credit sequences for Wolf's Reign. He's also the character designer and chief animation director for Fullmetal Alchemist 2004. ...and its sequel film, The Conqueror of Shambhala. And honestly, as we cover more series in the future... ...expect to hear more about this guy... ...because he's not going anywhere. And so when it comes to designing characters... ...for a manga adaptation like Soul Eater... ...you have this tightrope that you have to walk... ...of designing characters that will work for the animation being produced... ...without straying too far from the original author's works. You know, these characters have to be clearly recognizable to the fans... They are the final gatekeepers after all. So getting into the actual character designs, if we were to take a census on the current design trends in popular anime, you may notice that a lot of emphasis is being put into eyes, particularly just the expressiveness and just the deep, these deep soulful eyes, almost like Pixar-like. My recent favorites are Attack on Titan and Vinland Saga. We also have Oshinoko is putting on a ton of emphasis But Soul Eater goes for something very different, both in the manga and as the homage in the anime. Eyes are drawn very simple with only just one dividing line for shading. The mouth also sits rather low on the face by comparison. And the nose is also sometimes just an oval with some shadowing. Yet the characters are still incredibly expressive even before you add in the cartoonish distortion where they they like to do a lot of manga style cutaway gags. The the simplicity gives these character designs a lot to work with, and both Okubo and Ito's designs take full advantage of this. The overall character design in the anime, uh, Ito took a more angular approach. I should say, like the characters are more, I, I guess, like sharper, streamlined than Okubo's softer, more rounder designs. It's more or less a subtle change. It's it's a little hard for me to describe this without visual aid. So I can just more or less say like, go on, just do a Google image search or however it is, and just check the manga designs versus the anime designs. You'll kind of see what I'm talking about. But basically the anime designs were to, to allow the characters to flow through the action scenes better. When you have something more angular in nature, it just lends itself more to to motion. Also to go, to get back to the manga and just Okobo's, designs for a moment, because again, these are all existing character designs that are just more or less tweaked for animation. But Okobo should be given a ton of credit for giving the animation team an amazing set of characters to work with in the first place. Even at the time, his Okobo's designs stand out from his peers at the time in other magazines. And it's really, this style is something that I really haven't seen replicated until Fire Force, which again, is just Okobo doing his thing again. What I'm talking about is every character in Soul Eater down to even all the side characters. Everyone has very distinct hairstyle. Everyone has uh, relatively different clothing and patterns, body language, body structure. The witches and their animal designs are one thing. Take a look at the main cast of Soul Eater altogether. Then take a look at the secondary cast. Each and every character has their own set of motifs. I already covered a few earlier. We have Black Star with his star tattoo and on his shoes. We have Maka's pigtails, the big boots, the long overcoat with those cuffs. Death the Kid in his mismatched but also symmetrical suit. Frankenstein in that gigantic screw stuck in his head. There's one. There's another side character because uh, Spirit Albarn is far from the only Death Scythe. Later, as soon as Arachnophobia and Arachne comes back, you actually have three Death Scythes who. Come from across the world to Death City. So one of them, Death Scythe, Justin Law, has this whole priest, uh, Catholic priest, uh, cross motif going on, coupled with the fact that he's a freaking guillotine weapon. There's, there's just no repeating patterns really in the cast, whether in hairstyle, face, or dress. This is an incredible achievement. That is not easy to do. And to talk about the animation, to lead into the animation. Action scenes in Soul Eater are extremely fluid and very dynamic. Characters are literally bouncing off the environment. We have mid-air acrobatics all over the place. Everyone's dodging and weaving through a barrage of hits. Even if there's a character like clashing weapons and they're both trying to out-muscle the other, there's always this extra movement of them trying to get into a better position for grappling or to break away to get a quick hit in. The choreography of this show is immaculate. And the primary key animator I want to talk about is a man named Yutaka Nakamura and this guy directed some of the best action scenes on on the show. Some of his other credits leading up to this were he worked on Neon Genesis of Evangelion, he was a key animator on Sword of the Stranger, and more recently in some of his examples of where he's like really just been doing some of his best work so far, he was a key animator on One Punch Man. He's currently a key animator on My Hero Academia. But check out this other show, Mob Psycho 100. It's like they just told him to go wild. Mob Psycho 100 is just insane. And it's the culmination of what I think everything that he started to do in this series gets paid off in Mob Psycho about eight years after this finished. So his signature style is these explosive impacts that basically break the environment into cubes. And this is more like an explosion or typically when the ground gets punched, it all just breaks into these stylized cubes. And if you want an example, this, you go to One Punch Man, Mob Psycho, My Hero, they have this impact style in spades. But the earliest example of his work in Soul Eater is actually in the opening fight. Uh, Episode one, this is Maka versus Jack the Ripper. Just look at the choreography both with Maka and with the quiche egg Jack the Ripper. Like It is... This guy is Edward Scissorhands meets Nightmare Fuel. And this fight is the very first fight of the series, and it's just nuts. And it only gets better through the show. But what I wanted to focus on for the podcast, this podcast episode specifically, was an animation technique called Impact Frames. And this isn't already an existing technique, but it's how Nakamura played with this technique and also... Twisted it into his own other style and stylized upon it. So, impact frames are basically where a frame of animation is blurred with action lines or like a flashing monotone, black and white, to emphasize a hit or explosion. If you want uh, one of my primary examples, check out Dragon Ball Z, some of those fights. So, in the Goku versus Vegeta fight, the Kamehameha versus the Galagon, or Gohan versus Perfect Cell, really anytime anyone fires a laser beam in Dragon Ball, is when you're going to see impact frames and these impacts really happen just before or even during a hit this is a literal blink and you'll miss it sort of sequence we're talking one or two frames out of the whole thing but if it wasn't there you would notice its absence so during his time with soul eater nakamura experimented with impact frames and he also experimented primarily with motion blur aspect of it into a point where you couldn't really call this impact frames anymore. It was really just extended and stylized motion blur. It almost has this brush-like quality to it. In exchange, it adds like this distinct visual flair. It's more like a morphing approach versus bam, impact frames. It's really more like a morphing fluid approach. It's almost like watching water in motion. And particularly in episode 46, in one of the duels between Black Star and Mifune, he just goes full continuous abstraction for the final blow. Mifune, that entire scene just gets transformed into a series of lines. It almost looks something out of an ink drawing. It was completely unnecessary for him to stylize the fight like that, but it is so awesome. It is so epic. I wouldn't have had the fight in any other way. It is just so beautiful. And in another example, if you want of this stretching and more like fluidity of the motion blur, Nakamura animated the revival sequence for the show's chief bad guy, the the Kishin Ashura. And this is a moment where the Soul Eater decided to go full on horror. He added so many just micro movements and just it is, it's is terrifying the revival sequence of when Ashura gets revived. It is ugh. another big player was Norimitsu Suzuki. Now he primarily contributed to the storyboards and key animation for the four ending credit sequences of the show. However, he did animate the fight between Blair Witch and Maka in episode 1. Yeah, I'm just gonna name drop some characters at this point. Just for, yeah, this is a Halloween slash horror, just bonanza of references. It's so cool. A couple of other examples. We have Masahiro Sato. He animated the episode 13 fight of Maka and Black Star versus the werewolf, Free. You have Hirofumi Suzuki, episode 8. This is Professor Stein versus Krona and Ragnarok. This is the first instance where we, this is the episode where Krona is introduced. Also, Medusa is introduced in this episode. And finally, uh, another one, we have Katsunori Shibata. He did a good chunk of the final fight in episode 49 versus Ashura. There are so many people. There are dozens and dozens of key animators who were on this. But that's main. It's more, I just really wanted to talk about Nakamura and the, the motion blur effect. If you've, if you've watched Soul Eater, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And you'll know Nakamura is one of the key players in bringing that look to life. So I'm going to jump into the rest of the cast. So we have series composition by Akatsuki Yamatoya and Megumi Shimizu. Storyboards were by Tensai Okamura, who he also storyboarded the second opening credits, uh, Paper Moon, which was sung by the lovely Tommy Heavenly Six. Okamura-san was also the chief director on Wolf's Reign and Darker Than Black. He also had Shinji Ishihara on storyboards. He would go on to direct the fairy tale series. That's another one for you, Captain N. Concept design for the show was Shinji Aramaki. He's primarily known as a mech designer like Bubblegum Crisis. He also did some mech designs on Wolf's Reign. I like him much better when he's on the design team rather than his more recent outings as a director seat. Soul Leader is during a time when he was still firing on all cylinders to bring the the world and setting to life. And alongside him was the chief art director, Norifumi Nakamura, who's also on the backgrounds team, and to also lean into the animation, because it's not just characters bouncing across the backgrounds. Backgrounds in Soul Eater are never passive, and even at times the background turns just fully into brushstrokes To emphasize the hit, this feeds back into Nakamura's technique. This also applied to the backgrounds. Like I said, the architecture of Soul Eater is kind of crazy. It's very in-your-face. For example, there's a village of needles in an early arc. And I'm talking like metal spikes sticking out of thatch roofs. The DWMA itself is this gaudy red-spiked death mask, sort of castle monstrosity Death City is built like this layer cake. There's a lot of emphasis really on rectangles and not just that rectangles that curve or leaning at odd angles that make it feel like the environment is looming over you at times. And again, to to reiterate, the environment moves with the characters during a fight. Our heroes use the terrain to grab every advantage they can. So there's a lot of really clever, subtle placements of launch points and points of cover, and just various things. This doesn't happen without tight communication between the art and animation departments. A lot of credit goes to them. Music production was done through Aniplex. Music assistance was done by TV Tokyo. And you've heard a little bit through this episode because I, I don't really know the best way to describe Soul Eater's music aside from otherworldly. The music soundtrack was done by Taku Iwasaki. And at every time, it just, just goes for the weird. It's haunting. At times, it lends itself to horror. Sometimes, it lends itself to comedy. But th- with all the absurdity of the architecture, the emphasis of insanity as, and Halloween, and just the idea of this Tim burton ass setting of Soul Eater, it just really lends itself to, to that setting. And there's also a lot of vocal tracks performed by the artist Lotus Juice, who I primarily know from the Persona series, uh, video game, and then the anime adaptations. Lotus Juice is kind of like a hip-hop artist and does this free-flowing rap style, but I would personally put him more in the hip-hop style camp. I'll also list some of his non-Persona credits, like uh, Bungo Stray Dogs, Noragami. And honestly, I can't think of Soul Eater music without thinking of Lotus Juice. He really makes those vocal sides of the tracks come together and lastly to kind of cap this off one more artist i want to highlight in the music section is tm revolution he sings the opening credits the first opening credits resonance and also does a song souls crossing for the video games he also has a very distinctive voice i wouldn't really call him rock and roll but it's also like almost like alternative rock It's very, it's a very interesting style and it's it's him and Lotus Juice really, when I think of the vocal tracks for Soul Eater and just some of my favorite vocal tracks in any shounen anime in particular, I just think of these two gentlemen. And so with all that being said, I think now is a good time as any to transition over to the review roundup. Thank you so much for listening to me thus far. I really hope you enjoyed some of the more production side of Soul Eater. Now I'm going to kind of gush about the show a little bit why I love it so much. Before I go into any plot details and why I love this show, if you're interested in checking out Soul Eater, the show is available for streaming on Netflix, Hulu, and Crunchyroll, both both subs and dubs, however you want. The Blu-ray set has also been out for a while. This is a 15 year old show and now it's part of the Funimation Classics line it's been there for a little while you can buy this series for about 38 bucks US over on right stuff anime and it also goes on sale pretty often as well i wholeheartedly recommend you pick up this series Soul Eater also represents a couple of firsts for me it was the first series i watched while i was actively airing and this also means it was the first series that i watched in the original language japanese i actually watched it with pan translated uh, subtitles this is also the first show I really got obsessed with in high school. And in 2013, I started my anime collection with a combo purchase of my Soul Eater Blu-ray set. I'm looking at it on the shelf. And Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. This is from a FYE. These are stores like Four Your Entertainment. They basically existed in shopping malls. And I just ran across Soul Eater and Ghost in the Shell while on a college band marching road trip. I couldn't tell you which game we were headed to. But I saw the show on sale on their section, and I just bought it immediately. And for me, I keep coming back to Soul Eater because it just has this cool factor. Soul Eater holds, still holds up as one of the most unique art styles for a just any anime in general, particularly for Shonen action series. It's just so unique. The influence of horror film aesthetics like Saul and Halloween you can tell this like right from the get-go the first episode and you can see the how the world of Soul Eater almost exists side by side with Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas if you squint hard enough the Tim Burton influences uh, everywhere as well particularly in the architecture how characters move how everything just has like everything in Soul Eater just has this weird vibe to it it has this punk aesthetic almost goth like it That you would walk into a Hot Topic and see Soul Eater shirts next to Jack Skellington just all the time. Monsters like zombies, mummies, werewolves. These are just normal occurrences in this world. One of the teachers, Sid, they even casually mentioned in episode 4, I think, of, Oh yeah, our teacher died through the Statue of Liberty to the forehead incident. And they just keep talking about like, wait, 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 go back to the Statue of Liberty through the head. What? And now he's a zombie? And on top of that, you have this immensely creepy sun and moon who are just always in the sky laughing or snickering at our character's struggles from on high. Even during battles at nighttime, you'll see the Soul Eater moon has this, he starts bleeding from its mouth. And this is when like a character has a serious injury or another person dies. The moon will just start bleeding out of nowhere. Like this is just, it is just nuts and speaking of nuts, the way insanity and madness are expressed is also rather interesting. I have a little bit on that later. The Kishin himself is like this very embodiment of madness and chaos. But he's also a rather unique villain in that he's actually more... hes like For being the main bad guy, the Kishin Asher is actually a rather passive character. And he's practically a MacGuffin for the main plot of the series... The witches, uh, Arachne and Medusa, are both trying to go after for Ashura for different reasons. Both want to control the world. And, of course, we have Shibusen Academy is, of course, hunting the Kishin to take him out. And as the series progresses, the operations of Shibusen become more and more like a military. Like, all of a sudden, in as we get closer to episode 40s, the kids are thrust into a literal war against arachnophobia. This is the witch Arachne's organization and the line between winning and losing an encounter on the battlefield becomes a lot more blur. You know, a tactical retreat may actually be the best way forward. Delaying someone's arrival to a fight is actually the true victory, especially like in the operation where Medusa seeks to revive the Kishan Ashura. There are so many instances of her crew, the werewolf free, and her uh, partner-slash-blackmailed witch, uh, Ereko, this is the Frog Witch, they are not trying to win the fight. They're just trying to delay uh, Maka, Death to Kid, and Blackstar from reaching the Kishin before they can revive him. The line between... It it becomes increasingly more blurred. And as the show goes on, the morals of the DWMA become grayer as well, as both sides escalate the conflict. There are spies and assassins everywhere, and it gets to the point where you start to think that maybe the Lord death is not as great as he seems to be. Maybe Shibusen is overextending its reach. Maybe he's taking two extreme measures in trying to take out the Kishin Asherah and Arachne. And that, like, all of this blurring of the lines and all of this stuff, like I love this about the show. It is not afraid to go in this direction. Again, this is a show for teenagers. This is for 13-year-olds and up you know this is as much of a straightforward action series as soul leader is at times i love that it respects its audience to the point of yeah is this it'll pose a situation that goes are the good guys really the good guys in this situation is how they approach this the right way of going about it and and talking about different characters and morals as well my one of my favorite characters in this show is still the witch medusa so she has a much longer con to, to play out in the manga, but for the anime, she needs to make a sort of fatal slip up and then you know, meet her end, however she does. But in the manga, she's able to play a much longer game because she has this particular ability to soul hack bodies, just body swap with whoever's nearby, or even slither away from a fatal encounter as one of her backup pet snakes. And Medusa is just one of my favorite villains in anime. She is so unapologetically evil. And another aspect of the show is her dynamic with the Meister, Professor Stein. Stein himself is an interesting case study of how even the adults that we see as pillars in our lives are really just barely hanging on like the rest of us. Think about it Frankenstein is DWMA's ultimate Meister, he's like the strongest guy they've got. Yet he's also like practically a ticking time bomb for madness. And he's the one most susceptible to the madness wavelength. And Medusa plays on this angle. She attempts every single angle to bring him over to her side. She's tries uh, seducing him in every way that she can think of. She's basically that snake in the garden, just constantly whispering in his ear. Even when she's not physically present, the way the St- Stein's madness starts to uh, make itself known is it's more or less like Medusa starts appearing in his dreams and, again, tries to bring him over to her side, kind of let go of all of his burdens. And even before all of this, Medusa managed to, the way we are introduced to the witch Medusa is she is the Death Weapon Academy's school nurse, for crying out loud. She's in the middle of it, right in the thick of enemy territory. And after Sol gets wounded in the battle against Krona on episode 8, medusa the nurse quickly realizes oh my gosh soul was infected by crona's black blood and like just like that she has a plan to foster the infection and the way the black blood manifests itself within soul is and stick with me here soul basically develops this weird mind palace space that's this almost like a jazz hall and it's occupied this red by by this red little demon imp wearing a tuxedo and he's just dancing to this offbeat skipping record of just offbeat jazz. And through the show, this little demon whispers in Soul's ear basically during every night and day, particularly during fights, to hey, just tap into a little bit of my power. Just give into the madness a little bit. Just let it go, let it all go. Stop worrying about it. And like the strain that this puts on Soul's, uh psyche puts a real big uh, damper on his and maka's relationship. And at a certain point, it almost ends their partnership. But later in the show, and again, especially in the comic, both Soul and Maka, this whole Black Blood situation becomes known to them, and they learn how to actually utilize this as a tool. And it makes for some of the coolest imagery in the series. Again, stay with me here. Soul Eater himself whips out a grand piano in his mind palace, and he starts playing what I can only call like a, a madness concerto, where the Soul Team Resonance reaches upon this borderline of, okay, we are like riding the line of insanity. If we make one little slip up, all of us are off to Gaga Land. Like, I don't know if anything that I just said makes any sense. It is so hard to describe something, like to describe imagery in an audio format, especially with something like Soul Eater. But like just the imagery in Soul Eater is just so over the top and I... Love it. And I could just sit here for another hour just talking about how crazy the manga gets and all the things that I also touched upon in the animation section. I love the action scenes of Soul Eater. They keep me coming back to the show time and again, even if I don't rewatch the series front to back again, there are all the different clips on YouTube of all the different fights and it's just fun sometimes to throw on the soundtrack and just jam out to some weird offbeat, just honestly some alien tunes or again, just to play back my favorite fight scene. But I do have to touch upon real quick. That being said, this series is far from perfect. You know, the manga started in the early 2000s and Okubo's humor, I call it like, it's kind of very hit and miss for most folks. He generally takes on this slapstick comedy style, but it is very 2000s humor. And some of these jokes haven't really aged very well or some of them were kind of on the edge of being funny to begin with. Again, I rather like the slapstick humor, but Okobo's humor is also like, he just suddenly gets horny for no reason. And yeah, you can look at like Subaki and Patty, particularly the character Blair Witch. Like, yeah, they are rather busty characters. Blair Witch herself, anytime she is on screen, it's a basically a busty cat girl in a bikini. That's basically her entire deal. And this is just part of his writing style. You know, the man wears his... uh what he likes on his sleeve. And I will have to say that that being said, it's not as prevalent as I'm making, as I'm probably making it out to be the show for the most part, isn't as horny as I might be implying, but then just, it'll just, you'll just see Blair witch in a bikini just out of nowhere, or there might just be an offhand boob joke or like it just happens out of nowhere. And then you just won't see it again for like five or more episodes. It's very weird, but it is very much a part of the writing style and one of the reasons that I actually stopped reading okabo's most recent work, one of the reasons I stopped reading Fire Force, is because he cranks that kind of humor up to 11. Like, I just, I, I got tired of all the teenager titty jokes, to be honest. So, it's not as prevalent in Soul Eater, but it is something that I feel like I do have to mention. Again, it's only one aspect of Soul Eater. And for all that being said, Maka is the main character, and I do have to give him credit, and also the art team for the anime adaptation for all the action scenes, for all the choreography and how involved the action scenes are and all of the camera angles. There is not a single panty shot in soul eater, especially for Maka. He goes out of his way to not do any of that for any of the characters. And I do have to give him props for respecting Maka as a character. Again, I I don't want to demean the show by saying it is for teenagers But again, he is in a teenage magazine. He does go for the cheap thrills. And I can't really blame him, but I don't necessarily have to defend him. But if you can look past this aspect of Soul Eater, I think you will find an incredibly engaging cast of characters. A lot of emphasis is put on the effects of fear. Ashura the Kishin, his main madness component is fear. And the direct counter is the courage to fight fear. You can think of this as like the is as Ashura representing like chaos incarnate, the dark side of the force, but the main embodiment of Ashura's madness is if you give in to this madness, you become the very thing that you fear itself. And the main types of fear that Soul Eater explores is most notably like the fear of failure, of falling short of being too weak. Every main character has a fatal flaw they need to overcome. For some, this is uh, mostly played off for laughs, like Blackstar's showboating or Death Kid's obsession with symmetry. But these are actually symptoms of a more deeper-rooted problem. Blackstar's showboating is more to like for his own self-confidence. He had a very rough upbringing, after all. And his entire clan was obsessed with gaining strength and power through nefarious means. Blackstar himself goes through this very struggle. And... His fear of failure and of being too weak especially start to uh, become more prevalent as the encounters become more vague. It's not just about, hey, I beat up this guy. Why is, why is everybody still fighting? Or even when he loses a fight, he just blames himself for being too weak. And that starts to lead him down a Darth pack, dark path. Death the Kid. His own struggle, struggles are, of course, he is practically the next death god of the world. His obsession with symmetry is really a deep-seated insecurity of how is he supposed to represent order to the world. And he's watching his dad taking extreme measures. He's like, am I really going to succeed this guy? Am I going to make the same mistakes that he did? And he starts to have struggles with what's called like the madness of order. Everything must be exact. Everything must be, you know, perfect. And I could, again, I could go into detail on everyone's uh, individual shortcomings but I think that's that's best left up to watching the show for yourself and making your own conclusions I don't want my uh, commentary to influence your viewing experience too much but the main thing I want to say is yes everyone has a fatal flaw that they need to overcome but at the end of the day these kids are here for another in their time of need and you can also see like outside of, there is life that happens outside of just all the fighting and the combat, and we have to do this mission. These kids love to hang out with each other, and you can see that they genuinely care about each other. Uh, my, one of my favorite moments is actually immediately following the very perilous revival of the Kishan Asherah. Everyone almost dies. Like These kids like come extremely close to death, and Asherah just completely wipes the floor with them. But almost the very next day, everyone's together and they are playing basketball in the square. They're all wearing casual clothes. Maka's off on a bench because she just wants to enjoy her time alone and read a book. But they're all like, come on, quit being such a sourpuss, come play basketball with us. And they're all just hanging out. These are, they're just being normal kids. And I think that is just really telling of their way of, Hey, everything's going to be different from now on. But at the end of the day, we're all here for each other. And I think in the middle of this goofy absurd, kind of horny slapstick cartoon, I think there's a lesson here for all of us because as everyone has their own struggles in the show, they all have their own, I would say, like conflict with reaching out, like I can deal with this by myself or I need to be this pillar of support for everyone and I need to bear this burden alone because reaching out to other people is scary and this it inspires fear but keeping your problems bottled up inside will only make that fear worse. And this works in the opposite way as well. If you see someone else struggling, then there's that fear of, am I overstepping or is it, am I, is it a good thing if I reach out? And soul eater says, no, if you have a problem, reach out to someone, ask for help. If you see someone struggling with their fear, reach out a hand. just, just even if the, even if all you need to do is, Give them a hug or hold their hand. Just be there for that person. This bridge crosses both ways. There's been a movement for some time for Soul Eater to get a reboot anime similar to Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And I've been beating this drum for 15 years. This is my opportunity, I think, to do my little part to inject some fresh interest into this property. Because at the end of the day, I think Soul Eater's message is if you have the courage to reach out. I'm sure your feelings will resonate with that person, whether it is reaching out for help or reaching out to help. Just reach out. This has been episode three, Soul Eater. I thank you for listening. interested in becoming a member of the treehouse anime club community we have our brand new server over on discord i should have an invite link in the episode description or you can also reach out to me through instagram or the email our next episode will premiere on june 21st 2023 and we'll cover the film InuO, directed by maasaki yuasa and produced by studio science sutter i hope you look forward to that episode it's going to be a quite the wild ride And I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening.